0: Hi, Zach. Hi, Stephen.
1: So just a little while ago, Google Books won a lawsuit with the Authors Guild. And this court case has been going on for like 10 years. Is this the um, Gutenberg Project? i think so basically google wanted to index all of our books Uh, they wanted to scan in the pages and perform optical character recognition on them so that the books would be searchable and then when they started doing that the authors guild was like you're putting our work on the internet for free which kind of sounds like what they're doing but not really because google was just putting a few pages in for the search results so you search a phrase, mm-hmm. and then it pops up in Google Books, and you get, like, two or three pages of context for that phrase that you searched.
0: Okay, yeah. So that was the the thing that was really handy if you wanted to look up, you wanted to source a quote or something like that, because yeah. it would just pop up the highlighted quote and then the pages around it.
1: Uh, so last year, in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, they found that... The searchable database was not a substantial substitute for the original book, and therefore Google was cool to keep scanning in the pages. But then the Authors awesome. Guild appealed again, and it's taken this long to get to the Supreme Court excuse me, uh it's taken this long to get to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court declined to hear the case, so the second sort of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruling stands. So awesome. Google so it's all clear to scan these books. All right. Yeah, but uh, unfortunately, they don't care anymore. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you know how Google is? They're just like, next thing, next thing, next thing, all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been 10 years, so <laughs> they're no longer as excited as they were before. But they're still working on it. They mm-hmm. just don't have teams of people. They have maybe a team of people.
0: Yeah. Does Google still have the same guiding tenant of... Um, well they had Don't Be Evil as their like, one golden rule, but then their goal always, as I heard it, was to index the world's information. Do you know if that's still what they intend to do? I don't know. It could be. Because I feel like this would definitely be a good step towards indexing the world's information.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Have you seen the robot that Google uses to scan the pages? No, I haven't. It. I saw like an animated gif of it they had a bunch of lights that flashed and a robot that would turn the pages with some degree of accuracy and then Mm -hmm. take a picture and then flip the page take a picture take flip the page take a picture but they did it it did it really fast
0: google actually used some of this technology in one of their newer apps uh photo snap photo scan something (laughs) like that Hmm. um but it's for taking pictures of glossy real world photos to put them onto some digital archive somewhere, so you don't actually need to go to anyone now to get all of your photos digitized. You can just do it at home with your phone. It'll take oh, cool. a really long time. But it
1: just
0: shows you the different spots that you need to move your phone to and kind of what rotation to put it at so that you don't have any glare from right. lights around or from flash. You just get the photo as it is when you see it. What's the name of that app? Photoscan.
1: Don't you just hate it when teachers don't tell
0: you what's going on? I do hate it. um, (laughs) But even more than that, I hate it when teachers do tell me what's going on and I don't pay attention. Uh, So last (laughs) week, uh, we talked about taking projects and breaking them down into smaller components that are more manageable. And as it turns out, a lot of times, teachers are either apathetic or want you to succeed. Um, so <laughs> so the ones who want you to do well in their classes um, usually do make an effort to break down their project into smaller components. Uh, for example, my Computer Science 351, which is just the main Java programming course, does break all of its projects down into smaller components that you can implement just one by one, sometimes. This, this class is actually really neat and I'm a really big fan of it and the way that the professor teaches it. Um, he does a lot more class involvement than I've seen in most lectures, but when it comes to implementing the homework programming. There are a lot of weird inconsistencies, like sometimes they'll break it down into little manageable steps and sometimes it'll just be, have at it. Um, Sometimes, so one of the methods that we use for programs in this class is called report, which just returns false while printing an error to the console. Mm -hmm. Sometimes report has an underscore in front of it. Sometimes report does not have an underscore in front of it. Which means every time when you're programming, you kind of need to stop and take a break and see, scroll up, see if report in this program specifically has an underscore or not. Very minor inconsistency, but just mildly annoying.
1: Yeah, it would be. It'd be like, you know, like the AC button in your car. And like, if it was in some cars, it was, or not even in some cars, if it in your car, sometimes the button being out is on and sometimes the button being in is on. Yeah, just like that. <laughs> That's the best analogy I could come up with.
0: Yeah, because you can tell by playing with it, but...
1: Yeah. It's a light turns on, but I mean, you still, like, it, you're trying to be watching the road, and, like, you're mm-hmm. in your flow of mental state, and you have to take a break and go see if it has an underscore in front of it or not.
0: Yeah. In any case, though, most teachers, uh, or at least some of them, want you to do well in their classes and give you some good, actionable, smaller steps. Just make sure you read all the way through their handouts.
1: (laughs) So while you're doing that homework, Zach, what do you listen to?
0: It's gone through some iterations, and it goes in cycles for me. One of the things that I did last year is uh, Girl Talks All Day, which is an album of all different pop songs mashed up. So every seven seconds or so, it switches pop songs, but it switches them very fluidly. Um, like it'll switch to the line of one and then a little bit further on switch drum tracks and then switch vocals. Um, but it's not jarring when it switches. I, I don't know how to d- explain a mashup really. Uh, just go out. <laughs> it's free online. If you go uh, just Google girl talk all day. So I listened to that, and that's good because it's just kind of some noise in the background. Uh, but when I'm trying to read, there still are words to that. So my next iteration was listening to film scores. I got really big into Hans Zimmer and Junkie XL and... Oh, shoot, I can't remember. John Williams? Yeah, John, Yeah, some John Williams, too. Um, and they all produce like the Inception soundtrack and that kind of thing. So, those are good to listen to because they are designed to just kind of play in the background and add a mood to a situation without detracting from any of the dialogue happening or any of the normal things you would be thinking about as you're watching the movie.
1: Right, right.
0: So, those are good, and I've been using those for a while, and most recently I've been using uh, Pomodoro app. Uh, Do you know what Pomodoro is, Stephen?
1: I do, but uh, why don't you explain it anyway?
0: Okay. So, Pomodoro is the idea of taking 25 minute chunks of time and just working straight through those 25 minutes. And then you've got a five minute break following that, and then another 25 minutes of working and a five minute break. Um, so, the ideal work day would have 14 Pomodoro sessions fit into it, but most people don't really do or have 14 Pomodoro sessions worth of work, working <laughs> diligently. Um, so when I need to get stuff done, usually I will set a Pomodoro session, and the the Pomodoro app that I've been using is called Tide. Uh, it's on iOS and Android, and it's got some extra features, like it will notify you when your time's up, it'll buzz, which not all apps do for some reason. Hmm. It also plays music, so you can get some white noise of a waterfall, or a coffee shop, or General nature sounds, or it'll just play low notes on a piano very slowly, which is what I've been listening to most recently.
1: Huh, that sounds nice actually. The low notes.
0: Mm-hmm. What about you, Stephen? What do you listen to while you work?
1: Uh, well, it depends on what I'm working on. Most of the time, uh, when I'm writing, I like to listen to a playlist on Apple Music called "Chilled Out," mm-hmm. and basically, it's either lyricless or almost lyricless music that has very like slow beat and a uh, very low amount of drums. Mhm. Just it it's just kind of relaxing and um it is like a film score where it lo- allows you to just have a feeling when you're writing. Um when I am doing math or when I'm coding, I like to listen to some faster music um Pop music, rock, um, that kind of thing. Rap sometimes, but rap is a lot of lyrics, and I have to know the song really well, otherwise I listen to them. Mm-hmm. I don't really know why I like that. Maybe because it's more stimulating, but it it works, so I'm not... <laughs> yeah. So you can listen to pop music while you code? Yeah, Uh. mostly because I stop listening to it after a while. It just kind of blends together. Mm-hmm. Unless it's like a new song that I haven't heard before, and in that case I'll listen to it a few times and then be able to ignore it again. Yeah. Rain noises, sometimes, if I'm in the right mood, otherwise it can just be kind of annoying. And yeah, that's about it for listening. Uh, Actually, sometimes I'll listen to music and it'll be too distracting for this one word or something, like... I'll be, li- I'll be trying to write something and need to think of the correct word, you know, that one word that mm-hmm. is the right word. You know it is, but you just can't think of it. And I'll just pause the music for a second to think of the word and then forget to turn it back on and just listen to silence for a
0: while until I notice. Yeah, that I've definitely experienced myself doing that quite a lot too. Mm. Uh, you ever listen to podcasts while you work? Not as much recently. Uh, I usually do it when I've got more mindless things going on like if i'm doing the laundry or mm-hmm. i'm doing dishes or something like that then that's podcast time
1: yeah i listen to podcasts whenever i can because i had so many of them at some point <laughs> uh i just the story went like this it was basically uh over the summer i had a eh, i still have the job but i would do mostly mindless things like things that don't require my full attention Mm. And it was at the school's tech department. So I would listen to podcasts to keep myself interested, I guess. And the more I listened to podcasts, the faster I could turn up the speed. And the more podcasts I can listen to, because yeah. I was better at it. And um at the end of the summer, I was subscribed to over 70 podcasts. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so when the school year came around, and I couldn't work as much... um Oh, and I also listen to an at least an audiobook every month, because mm-hmm. that's how my Audible subscription is set up.
0: Yeah, and uh, y- you would be done with all the podcasts and need something to listen to, so.
1: Yeah, so, and yeah, there were days I could, I was out of podcasts completely, so I would just burn through an audiobook in a day. my gosh.
0: So, <laughs> how, how fast do you usually, did you over the summer listen to podcasts?
1: At the max that my podcast client, which is Overcast, can go. Uh, so it's, it's, it, uh, changes. It has a weird, uh, silence shortener in it mm-hmm. that will make it go faster if there are big pauses in the speech. Yeah. And so it averages out to about two and a half times that I can listen to without missing a word. Uh, for audiobooks, they're usually slower mm-hmm. because they're made for a different audience, I think. Yeah. I can usually listen to those in 3X. So, seventy podcasts at the end of the summer, and I go back to the school, and I can't listen to podcasts as much anymore, mm-hmm. like or even as nearly as close to as many podcasts. So I started just accumulating podcasts, unlistened to podcasts, and at some point I had two hundred unlistened to episodes, and it was like I was pretty sure I was never going to finish them. Like. <laughs> mm-hmm. They just went into that, uh, when I have time, I'll listen to these folder, you know? Yeah. So, but then, like, I started getting really behind on them. So, after a month, I was about a month behind in podcasts. And the news I was listening to was no longer relevant. Mm -hmm. So, I started sorting my podcasts into time-sensitive and not time-sensitive. And so, like, people telling stories, uh, not time-sensitive, so they'll get yeah. listened to it eventually. Uh, but like this week in tech or something like that gets put into time sensitive. So slowly I've been cutting down on the amount of podcasts I've, I've been subscribed to because at the end of the summer I was like, I like all these podcasts. I'm going to keep them all, which I learned is not entirely true. I did like them, but I wasn't, I didn't need them to keep functioning. Yeah. So, as of today, I have one Unlistened To podcast. Oh my gosh. Unlistened To episode, that is. And it was a
0: long journey, but I did it. So, I'm <laughs> so this note of I have 200 Unlistened To podcasts uh, was in the agenda uh, two weeks ago, last recording. And I, at the time, was only probably at 100. So, I was getting up there in podcasts. I'm only subscribed to 40 or so right now. Um But I haven't hit Inbox Zero since probably last summer myself. Last summer I was commuting probably an hour and a half by bus and subway to get to work in and out. um, Which I liked a lot more because I really do not like cars. uh, So I could just sit and veg out and listen to some podcasts. But I was staying right around Podcast Zero. But since that summer I have got a job in AV where I can't really tune out what's happening, because my job is literally to make sure that what's playing sounds good. (laughs) And I have just been working on school more, and really don't have much of a commute, because I live right on campus. So I am reaching 200 right about now. I'm two months behind. Oh. So. Yeah. I I guess I'll have to start breaking it down into news and not.
1: Personally, I put, like, uh, like, Night Vale is mm-hmm. not time-sensitive. And personally, I like listening to them in one big batch. Yeah. Like, I don't like listening to them every uh, two weeks or whatever they do, um,
0: as much as I like just listening to them all through, because it is one story. So one thing that you mentioned before when you were talking about podcasts is that you were listening to news that was no longer relevant. And one of the things that I heard, probably from Tim Ferris, is that news that isn't relevant after two weeks wasn't relevant when it happened either. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. So was that consistently coming from one podcast, that it was just information that after two weeks you didn't even need to know?
1: Uh, It wasn't that I didn't need to know, but it the a lot of time the story developed.
0: Okay, so it was outdated more than irrelevant.
1: Yeah, or something like I already knew that because of Twitter or something. So when did you, like, what was the first podcast that you listened to? It was This Week in Tech. Uh, It was, uh, like, when I first got my iPhone. Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't know, middle school? Yeah. And, or maybe, uh, I don't know if I had a phone by then. iPod or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And there was this podcast button, and I didn't really know what it was. And I just looked through it, and this all sounds like boring adult stuff. Although, this guy's kind of friendly, and... Talks about things I'm interested in, like computers and stuff. So mm-hmm. I started listening to This Week in Tech and then realized that they had an entire podcast network. Yeah. And then started listening to that stuff and then started branching out into different types of podcasts. I stuck to news for a while and then I, then people started putting out more like just for entertainment podcasts. Mm-hmm. And I got into those pretty well. Uh, all the Night Bell shows are pretty cool. I worked at this job for two years and last year over the summer, it wasn't a problem. The podcast that what that is because, uh, I had someone to talk to you. Uh, you worked at the job last year. So, but this year I was all on my own because you graduated Mm -hmm. and they don't let a grad. So they don't let a graduated student work at the school's tech department. Um, but yeah, we had some good times that we did in in the tech department. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Do you want to tell a story? Did you have one in mind? I no, I didn't have any pre-selected. I Yeah, me either actually. I would rather not only tell mm-hmm. the one of me crashing a drone into a tree twice. <laughs> Wait, twice? Yeah. All right, now I guess I need to tell it. I crashed two drones into two trees while working <laughs> this job.
1: And they're not like they're not just your typical um Quadcopter, like remote control quadcopter. The first These one are was. high end. Well, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh, that's what you meant. Okay, yeah, yeah. So one of them was like, what do you think? Like a fifty dollar quadcopter.
0: Yeah, just one of the little hobby quadcopters you get to give to your nephew to annoy to annoy yeah. their parents.
1: It, it had a camera on it, but it wasn't anything special. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. So how'd you crash that
0: one? So that one. um had you started working, or were you off for a day? I don't know, but I don't think I was there. That was that was right before you'd started working. Um, but you and Dylan, one of our friends, and a couple other students were there, and I was out just, like, practicing getting the drone up off the ground and going in circles and that kind of thing, just making sure I was somewhat competent at flying a drone. Right. Um, so i'm doing that and the wind starts picking up but i don't really necessarily notice that the wind has started picking up and i want to show you guys the drone so i start taking it up a little higher and like showing it off and then the wind just a gust of wind comes by and flings the drone across the school the school has a flat roof i thought it was dead i thought that like i had just lost this drone uh that the school school bought um And it turns out that I had not lost the drone entirely. It had gone past the roof entirely over the school and into a tree on the other side. So I ended up spending half an hour of my lunch break retrieving that drone from this really tall tree.
1: (laughs) And the second time, this one was a bit more higher stakes because it was a DJI Phantom so it's in the what do you think? Like, how many hundreds of dollar price range?
0: Ah, uh, the the current one is in a thousand dollars, I think. The current yeah, phantom. sounds about right. So it's around a thousand dollar quadcopter. Yeah,
1: and so yeah, it's a lot nicer. It has better balancing, so that Augusta wind can't just blow it away. Yeah, and it has a much better camera as well, and it has a, just a bunch of smarts in it. You can. Um, Mount an iPad or an iPhone or a Android weirdness mm-hmm. to the controller, so you have a a uh, point of view. Yeah, look of what the drone sees,
0: which is and really cool when you're flying it. Um, so the we had the test area for us flying this drone was in the gymnasium of the school, and we could set it, and it does the boot up and gets up to 5 feet or whatever off the ground all on its own and then it's got some telemetry tools underneath it so it knows roughly where it is relative to the ground so it you can't just drive it straight into the ground um and it has which is helpful yeah and it has a camera on it that you can see through the iPad like Steven mentioned so with some accuracy um you can look through the camera and move the drone left and right, but not with immense accuracy. So we're done. We've flown it around in the gym a couple times, feel pretty comfortable with the controls, take it outside, uh, boot it up, it gets off the ground, fly it in a circle or whatever. I think this was all mostly you. You were responsibly flying it in circles and stuff, right?
1: Yeah, and I just, like, we experimented with it. How high can it go before it starts yelling at us to go dip back down, um how far away can we make it go before it automatically returns back to where we initially had it. We tested the um, like how fast it could go, how um, what we could make the camera do to get some cool shots of the school, mm-hmm. and we tested the maneuverability a little bit by, in an open area, flying it in circles, uh, in tight circles, that is.
0: Yeah. And then Steven hands off the controller to me and I get really excited because the camera's there, and so I can see where the drone is going without needing to look at the drone, or so I think. So I initiate the startup sequence. It gets off the ground, and then I want to go forward, so I hit forward, and I'm watching the camera to make sure I don't crash into anything, and I'm watching the camera and hitting forward, and like, there's a tree coming up, but it's a ways away, and then Steven says, Zach, 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 and I stop hitting forward about the same time as the camera feed cuts out and I hear in the distance (laughs) (laughs) because the drone has just flown into a tree in a cemetery across from the school because, fun fact, there's a bit of delay when transmitting high-definition video from a drone to an iPad a couple hundred feet away.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um... What happened was, I was watching the drone, and I see it getting closer to the branches of a tree, not like the trunk of it, Mm -hmm. and it, like, when it hit the, it hit like a leaf first, and the, which slowed down one of the propellers, and the other propellers, because that one is falling, tried to compensate Mm -hmm. and lift it up more. So what happened was, it started hitting the leaf, then the other ones spun up, And basically flipped the drone upside down and made it fly straight (laughs) into the ground. (laughs) (sighs) So yeah, uh, I just recently pulled out the drone to to charge up the batteries because summer's coming around and we're going to take some more videos Mm -hmm. and pictures for the school's new website. And it still had the grass stains on the propellers from when it hit the ground. (laughs) So yeah. Uh, we spent a lot of time trying to fix it after it crashed.
0: Is it in working condition now? I don't remember how it was when I yeah, left. Yeah, it is.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's working just fine. All right. The the other drone we got, the one we did not crash yet. <laughs> yet. Um, <laughs> it's a DJI Inspire, so it's the highest-end DJI drone. Not true. Really? They got another one?
0: Oh, they've got, yeah, they've got a better one, but it's, like, eight. Oh, it's an octocopter. Yeah. Oh, no, I got... Oh, that's an imaging solution. That's a different product. It's not even a drone. The S1000 Plus. That's the one that I'm thinking of. Which is, most of the DJI drones have, like, a custom DJI camera, and the S1000 Plus just you chunk in your DSLR, or you know, a small-sized professional camera and you just fly around your professional camera
1: oh okay yeah yeah so uh the school has like i said a dji inspire which is i guess not the highest end one but pretty high end and the dji quadcopters have custom batteries they're lipo batteries and they're smart batteries so they uh will after a while start Draining themselves to uh, extend the life of the batteries. Mm -hmm. Because keeping a battery at 100% or 0% is actually really bad for it. So we haven't used it, obviously, all winter. Because it's winter and why would we? And uh, the batteries drain themselves like they're supposed to. Except they didn't stop at 50. Oh. They drain themselves all the way to 0. And then they drain themselves past 0. Somehow. So now the batteries won't charge. Hmm. And these are like $200 batteries. Yeah. So we're looking online for solutions to this. Like, can we jumpstart it? Can we jumpstart a battery? What's basically happening is the circuitry won't let any charge go into the battery without the circuitry being on. Mm-hmm. But the circuitry can't be on because the battery's dead. And we can't charge the battery because the circuitry's not on. And it's just, that's a loop. So we basically dismantled the protective covers. Oh my gosh. All of them, like we're, we're, we're seeing battery acid right now. Not quite that far, Mm -hmm. but like pretty close to that, like another layer and we'd be in quite a bit of danger. And we use some alligator clips to charge the battery manually. We, and we're seeing if that works. Um, we have to be really careful though, because, well. Yeah. It's live alligator clamps with an entire, it's 120 volts behind it. Also if we leave it in for too long the there's nothing to turn off the charging if the once the battery yeah, is full cuz you're not in the circuitry so, anymore. Yeah. So we're going to see if that works. That's our plan right now. It's they really it's it took me like I don't know half hour to get all the covering and protective crap off. That's good. Which is a sign that you should not do that. Yeah.
0: yeah. <sighs> That's I I'm just generally yeah. uncomfortable with the idea of taking apart that battery.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's also a giant battery. It's like I don't even know how many milliamp hours, but it's it's a lot. It's um, it's also lipo, so it's pretty volatile, mm-hmm. and it has to be to put out that much power for a drone that quickly,
0: for that long. So all of the drones have at some point been broken by themselves or by me.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. So p- another part of that job is uh, replacing... Old Dells. Pretty much, yeah. With new... this t- In this instance, with uh, Chrome bases or Chrome boxes, mm-hmm. which are just computers that only do Google Chrome. Yeah, and they're
0: about... I don't know what size comparison to give. They're the size
1: of a like a hardcover book. yeah just about like the volume and you just put them on the back of a monitor and you have a much cheaper solution for the school and a much more easy to maintain solution Mm -hmm. for the school so we like them a lot um but we have to install them all we have to put them in the lab the computer lab and take the old ones out and we're loading up zach's Minivan with uh, these, with these really heavy towers, and we just this is taking forever because we have to go inside, grab a tower, walk outside, put it in the yeah um, put it in the van. So we're like, okay, we'll get like uh we'll get a push cart to help Mm -hmm. with that. Get more out at once, take less trips. And we decided. I think it was mostly me. I'm not gonna (laughs) blame. But also, I was the.
0: Zach so didn't stop me, okay? Senior <laughs> senior guy, I guess, in that team, and I didn't say anything about it, so... So yeah, I,
1: I said, well, it'd be more efficient to um, just put them all in at once, all the towers mm-hmm. for the entire lab on one cart,
0: and that way we only have to take one trip. And so far... Which will save time. With this cart, the only stuff that I'd done had been weirdly shaped stuff. Not nice rectangles, so you can only stack one or two layers, and it gets pretty wobbly. Right. Um, but computer towers are mostly pretty nicely shaped rectangles.
1: Mm-hmm. So we could get four on per layer. Yeah. We could get four towers on per layer of stacking. And we did. We kept just kept stacking and stacking and stacking until we eventually got all of the all of the towers from this computer lab onto this cart. So we then we try to push it and it's heavy but we're managing and there's like a carpet mm-hmm. bump where the carpet changes and there's a little bump in the like the door frame. so we're pushing through that and it's a little bit hard to get over so we're both pushing or pulling yeah. really hard and we hear this like crack clearly coming from the bottom of the cart and
0: the cart starts to tip over and all of the stacked up because... very heavy computers start to slide down the cart because the cart is now leaning
1: yeah <laughs> yeah one of the wheels on the cart uh the joint broke or it um the screw holding it into the wood of the cart broke or it got pulled mm-hmm. out i guess so we're scrambling now cuz i'm i think i was holding I was doing the wheels job. I was holding up that corner of towers. And while Zach was frantically moving the towers from the cart onto the floor on the table Mm. that was next to us. And so, yeah, uh, that's
0: how we managed to break a cart. Do do you remember how we got all the computers out after that? Oh, my God. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There were these like
1: wheelie chairs. And so we took like two at a time after that instead of we just instead of just carrying them we put them on top of wheelie chairs and wheeled them out to Zach's mm-hmm. car
0: <laughs> so i guess right. let the lesson in that be there's so, a point where there's too much efficiency
1: <laughs> not too much efficiency just like where it's not worth it to be that yeah. efficient cuz in actuality we probably saved like three minutes, if, if it, that would have worked.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> why, why are all of the stories of us breaking stuff?
1: Well, those are the good ones, you know?
0: So there are reports in the news, this article is specifically from TechCrunch, but I think it comes from Wall Street Journal, originally, that Google is planning to block ads with Chrome by default.
1: Hmm, that's quite a move on yeah. Google's part that will make a lot of people very upset
0: and also i i when i first saw it i was really confused because google's main mode of business is serving ads on top of whatever they do right yeah so maybe this is them slowly transitioning into a non-ad model uh to work more with voice devices like google home or oh yeah or more likely they're going to block everyone else's ads that aren't theirs that makes more but sense but also is a lot more ready for an antitrust lawsuit
1: yeah that's going to be that's going to be a lot of lawyers being very
0: happy yeah. is what that is so what most likely uh, is going to happen and what they've said is they're going to block upsetting ads so the ones that like show up full screen and have the tiny x button or uh, or ones that serve malware yeah those kinds of things <laughs>
1: Um, I mean, that's fine, but it's it's one... I don't know. It's one thing to have a third-party extension that blocks ads. It's another to have it be default in the most-used browser mm -hmm. in the world. Because it's just like... Because that's people's main source of revenue. And if the majority of their users don't pay it, then it's going to be an issue.
0: One thing... So, I saw this, and their main argument was that they didn't like that their ads did get blocked by a lot of ad-blocking plugins. ins um, And one of the right. plugins that you've started me using is uBlock Origin, which, yeah, as it was one. described to me, just stops JavaScript from going unless you specifically allow it.
1: No. What it does is rep- it blocks w- websites from pulling... ...from other websites, information, or JavaScript, or if you turn on images, images. Okay. Uh, So unless it's hosted on that website, then it won't show up. Hmm. So if I put an ad on the Worrying Bugs podcast feed, which there are not, then it would... Basically, I'd put a thing in the code of the website that says, okay, go to the ads website... And pull an image and a link to go over the image, and put it yeah. here. What uBlock Origin does is cuts off that connection so that it my website can't pull anything from the ads mm. website. It also blocks, um, if you want it to, any external requests. So if a website was pulling an image from another website, then it would block that. If you want it mm. to, it. So yeah, any requests that you could think of. It works awesome if you just uh plug it, if you just turn it on, but it also has very granular controls
0: so you can control pretty much everything about it, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool about it as well. So one of the things that reminded me of um that idea of ad blocking and Google trying to combat ad blocking in a positive way was Google Contributor. Did you ever hear about Google Contributor?
1: Yeah, that's um Replacing your yep. ads with So you cats, would go right?
0: to a website with Google, sign up for Google contributor, and pay them $10. And then you would effectively be advertising with a target audience of only yourself, and all the ads would be cats. So $10 worth of Google ads yeah. would get replaced with cats. And you would still be paying for the products, you would still be supporting the people who needed the ad revenue to eat
1: right so like if you visited a website that normally uh, has ads and you have google contributor and you give them however many dollars then instead of seeing those ads you would just see pretty circles or cats or Mm -hmm. whatever you said it to be uh one of the main arguments against third-party ads is um The fact that a lot of them, not a lot of them, but some of them have Mm -hmm. malware embedded because the website hosting the ads, the one that you wanted to go to, doesn't have very much control over what ads get put on their website. So in theory, I could make a ad that has a virus in it. And if you were to click on that ad, like, I don't know, like you you like a website would want you to because Mm -hmm. they get more money if you do then you would be infected with a virus and that's not good for the website's yeah business because their users are getting infected with a virus and it reduces a lot of trust in Mm -hmm. the website and that's a really good argument for ad blocking Mm -hmm.
0: because of how
1: awful ads are basically
0: Alright, so I got the opportunity last week to watch the documentary Zero Days, which could go in the media section. We could be talking about media, but I'm not really worried about spoilers because it's a documentary. It's all just facts. The documentary mainly had its focus on the Stuxnet virus, which circulated around 2010. You might have heard about it as the virus that was attacking machinery um, and going into supply chains and attacking those and it didn't really do anything to just a normal home windows system so the reason that stuxnet exists as most security researchers and political correspondents and people can generally agree is because the u.s and israel wanted to attack the iranian (laughs) nuclear program so a team within the nsa and the cia working with the israeli cyber offense program wrote this one program that was designed from the bottom up to work and just go in and mess with these systems that they had in the Iranian nuclear facilities. Um, And it was really shocking because it was one of the first it was one of the first instances of really widespread state-sponsored attacking as far as we've confirmed um right I'm, I'm reading these my notes are written on an environmentally friendly coffee mug grip not a to-go cup grip
1: <laughs>
0: so it's it's a bit of a challenge i wrote them in the dark with a fountain pen oh wow on that's, a coffee grip, it's hardcore i really am Dedicated to getting notes for this podcast, just not dedicated to transcribing them into a readable format.
1: What happened to um, your Rodeo? I didn't
0: expect to be taking notes, but it was interesting enough that I wanted to mention it on the podcast. All right. So the interesting thing about this being state-sponsored is it's pretty much perfect code. As perfect as code can get, there are very few bugs, whereas most viruses that are made by just one or a few people are made with some errors there are some bugs in the code uh, and usually that's not too worrying or it's it's worrying that there's a virus but it's not worrying to the person who's making the virus because most of it works
1: right yeah if you can infect most people then
0: you're fine so that was probably the first hint that this was a really big group doing this and probably a state-sponsored group and The next big hint was there were four zero-day exploits in this one virus. And a zero-day exploit is a trick in code, something that you find in a system that lets you get right in. That's an exploit. And a zero-day exploit is one that no one knew about before
1: you leveraged
0: it to attack them. So there were four of those in this one bit of code, which is not really all that common at all.
1: Yeah, that's really impressive. Yeah. To find, I mean, to find four flaws in a nuclear program is impressive, mm-hmm. and to write a virus that exploits all four in one false swoop is even more. Well, the impressive. interesting thing
0: is I believe that all not all four, but most of those exploits were just in getting it from one device to another because they couldn't directly infect the Iranian nuclear program, you just can't have a guy in a Groucho Marx mustache walk into the Iranian nuclear program and stick a USB key into some computer and mess the whole system up. You need I think we to... were trying hard enough. <laughs> you need <laughs> to somehow feed it to a contractor for the Iranian nuclear program and then have the contractor bring his laptop in and the laptop connects to the network and then through the network it gets onto a computer and then when they're... Plugging a USB key in from one air-gapped computer to another, then you start the infection.
1: So, four different exploits for four different systems, essentially. What do you mean by that? To get it from the contractor to the air-gapped computer to the other air-gapped computer to the other air-gapped computer. It was four exploits, Mm -hmm. all in one virus, but for different systems. Yeah.
0: We should probably define air gap.
1: Yes. An air gapped system is one that doesn't have a connection to any other system. So no internet, no phone line, no USB, just the power cord, essentially.
0: But perfectly air gapped so, computers don't exist. Everything needs an update or a new file or yeah, something. Yeah, otherwise like they that. would
1: be useful. They need a they need a console to type something into. Mm-hmm. If you can trick... I mean, this wouldn't really count as an exploit, but if you can trick someone into typing, a, typing the shutdown command into the computer, then that works too.
0: Yeah. But Stuxnet was not so overt as a shutdown command. What Stuxnet did was, once it infected the computer, it would go through and make sure that it was the right computer to be infecting and not just spreading through. Um, And then it would connect through that computer to the PLCs, the Programmable Logic Controllers, Mm -hmm. which are just interfaces between the computer and another piece of hardware. In this exact instance, it was a spinny thing. Centrifuge? Yeah, centrifuge. Um, Which I ran (laughs) needed to enrich its uranium. So these centrifuges need to go at a constant rate of... A 1,000 RPM or something, and what Stuxnet would do is it would select one of the centrifuges, start spinning it up faster after 13 days, um, feed back normal data from the PLC so that the person oh. at the main controller didn't think anything was going wrong, and just spin it up faster and faster and faster and faster until it demolished wow. itself. Um it also pretty, over, yeah, overrode stop controls. So even if the PLC was right in front of you and you could see that it was starting to spin faster and faster, even though the data was wrong, if you started hitting the stop button and nothing, nothing worked, uh, it would still oh, wow. rotate until it broke. Um, and the idea with this was to decrease their reliance and their trust in their nuclear scientists, essentially, to get all the people who right. set up this stuff. Under question,
1: right? You you made a broken system that destroyed itself. Yeah, why should we trust you to give us energy mm-hmm. or
0: weapons or whatever they're gonna do with it? Um. So this kept going on uh, until Obama took office. When Obama took office, he reinstated it, but like with some different stipulations. So once Obama reinstated it, um, they kept going on with the program past 2009. In 2010, allegedly, the Israeli program took all of the code, messed with it so that it was much more aggressive in getting to the Iranian computers. This is now where they found those four zero days. They didn't pop up until this 2010 update um, and released it out into the world, which, means that, uh, which meant that a lot more people in the security research community started finding it and thinking, hey, something's up. This is infecting everything, and we have no clue what it's right. doing. So more and more research was piled onto it. Um, eventually Homeland Security, another department of the U.S. government, got involved and got afraid that it was going to start infecting yeah. government computers um, within the U.S. That government because there, no, one in, no one was telling them that we were responsible for this. Um, and now recently it's come to light that we were in some way tied to this program which means that everything that we were trying to do, trying to decrease their trust in those scientists, has been 100% thwarted, because it's no longer the scientists' fault. It's um, America's fault.
1: Right, yeah. That, makes, that also makes sense.
0: Yeah. And then from there, they moved on to politics, which I was less interested in. It was still kind of interesting, but I took fewer notes. Um, the one thing that was... Kind of funny to me was they did a, they mentioned like now U.S. has a code boot camp where they're hiring the best offensive attackers, um, for the cyber war, Um and the B-roll that they shot for the code boot camp was just Wireshark, like doing a system and analysis, Wireshark doing a system a- analysis. Why can I not say that word? Uh, just on some version of Ubuntu, and that was their B-roll <laughs> for.
1: That's funny. Uh Wireshark is uh a way to monitor a network yeah. for the purpose of well, it could be used for a lot of things I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um basically when you have a Wi-Fi signal or really any if you're connected to ethernet this works as mm-hmm. well. But Wi-Fi doesn't just go from your phone to the router. It has to go through it goes in all directions. So, the information over the network is publicly visible mm-hmm. to anyone looking at it. So, Wireshark just displays all the information to whoever wants to see it. Yeah. So, I mean, if you are in a Starbucks coffee shop and you're connected to their Wi-Fi, in theory, someone could sit in the Starbucks analyzing the network traffic and figure out what you're doing online. Mm-hmm because they can see everything all the communications between your phone and the Starbucks router.
0: But also Wireshark is something that any 10-year-old with access to Lifehacker and the internet can figure out pretty easily. Yeah. It's not a complex tool. No. Um the other thing, the other point that I have on this documentary is that B-roll of code is so hard. Like what do you mean? When when you're producing a film um, especially a documentary, you want to have what's called B roll, which is not an interview, it's not like the thing happening, it's just conceptual like if you're talking about nature, it's just you get some B roll of a waterfall and some trees or whatever. Right. But for code, there's no good way you can't just have some dude hunched over a computer for twenty minutes straight of B roll. <laughs> um So usually what people end up doing is multiple layers of white text with a bit of a blue glow around it with a background
1: it's it's just random gibberish that which is for to the average uh consumer of a movie a documentary like that is not going to is going to look exactly the same as an actual bit of code Mm -hmm. because it's all gibberish to them but for someone who actually knows what they're doing yeah it looks like gibberish (laughs) And it's very um, clearly gibberish. It's not. Mm-hmm. There's not a possibility like this could be something.
0: Yeah. This this documentary they actually did pretty good at making sure it wasn't total gibberish. Hmm. But it was still a well, lot yeah. of gibberish.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was Wireshark. So, and I'm sure like, I don't know. Do you think that the cyber war will use Wireshark, Zach, or do you think they'll use the Secret NSA version?
0: Is Wireshark open source? I think so. Then I'd bet it's some variation on Wireshark. Yeah, Actually, no. Makes sense. Government code isn't good.
1: <laughs> oh, no, they got the... Um, what's it called? The Secret Service for websites. The what? Uh, people who treated the the Obamacare website.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Digital Service, USDS. Yeah, US Digital Service. They'll
1: make sure that the Secret NSA Wireshark is good code. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I mean, Stuxnet was good code, so... I, mean, I guess yeah, they just not like... don't waste their good coders on public-facing programs.
1: <laughs> so, milk politics.
0: Yeah. It's it's a regular segment now.
1: <laughs> uh, breaking news in Wisconsin. Basically, what's happening is 60 to 75 major dairy farms in Wisconsin are... Have a abundance of milk. They have an oversupply, mm-hmm. and this is at least partially because of a change in Canadian trade policy that makes the price of Canadian milk go way I'm down. I'm pretty sure it's, so. Any buyers will. It's
0: much more due to people getting too confused by all the almond milk that we have in stores now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, those darn almond milk people putting our good farmers out of business. <laughs> No, seriously, uh, the Canadians, they um, are competing with Wisconsin now mm. as the supplier for, for America's dairy. And as of May 1st, most of those contracts that the dairy farms have will run out oh. and they'll those people will go to the Canadians because... Supply and demand. Because they're yeah. cheaper. Yeah. And it's not like we can just store the milk for later because milk will just go bad. It's perishable. Yeah. So that's an issue um, for Wisconsin right now because it accounts for a large portion of our GDP. Mm -hmm. so much so that we include uh, the number of cows in Wisconsin in the financial uh, and the fiscal reports. (laughs) Uh, It's it's a really big deal for Wisconsinites. Um, So politicians are trying to do stuff about it, Mm -hmm. but Wisconsin being a very Republican state, uh, it's making it really hard for a lot of these politicians to try to do what's best for Wisconsin while following their political ideologies. Uh, Scott Walker specifically, um, and some state officials, uh, signed a letter to Canada asking them to stop the trade policy change because you're gonna put, basically saying, hey, you're gonna put a bunch of people out of business. Don't do that. Mm. They signed a letter to Trump saying, hey Canada is ripping off Wisconsin and he he also said that um he came to uh, I don't remember where Kenosha it was Kenosha mm-hmm. he he went to Kenosha and said that Canada was ripping off Wisconsin in the dairy trade which uh, and all that is very pr- protectionist i guess yeah. as far as trade policy goes which is very much different from the traditional republican values of
0: free market capitalism yeah, but the general dislike of the uh, TPP and that kind of thing have also been fairly protectionist and also more more on the Republican yeah. side.
1: So it's just something interesting happening. Um, and up until this situ- situation, uh, there's been pretty much limitless demand for dairy because Wisconsin supplies most of the dairy for mm-hmm. U.S., and no one else could make dairy as fast and as cheaply as Wisconsin. Yeah. And that's because the state legislature has been helping the farms subsidize with subsidies and just things to make their milk cheaper. Mm-hmm. And they've been doing it for like 30 years. But now, so they've just been continuously producing more and more milk. And now they have so much milk and nothing to do with it. Hmm. And yeah, there's not a whole lot we can do about it. Um... It's basically people asking Canada to not do that and encouraging Wisconsinites
0: to buy more milk. Our best recourse is kindly asking Canada to stop. Sorry, Canada, but could you?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they have, I mean, we're like, hey, Canada, please stop. And they're like, "Uh, well, you shouldn't have produced that much milk. (laughs) It's not our fault that you
0: are bad at supply and demand made that much milk because they wanted that much milk well yeah so the reason that we have cows right now is because we need them to produce milk and beef and like mostly only domesticated animals really thrive in a human dictated world so do you think once we start Uh, producing um like lab meat and lab milk i guess would be the next and a logical next step are cows gonna be in right, zoos?
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh I don't know. It'll depend on um how much of demand there is to sea cows or what like No sea cows are like different. you wouldn't put a c- <laughs> No. Manatees will forever be in <laughs> zoos because yeah. Uh no, but like you wouldn't pee you wouldn't put like uh a tabby cat in a zoo because there's no demand to see a tabby cat because tabby cats are common so I mean there aren't dairy cows in zoos in like New York City I'm pretty sure even though dairy cows in New York City are very rare Mm -hmm. so I don't know they're not super interesting animals true Also, I think they have a a herd mentality, and they would be pretty lonely in a zoo. Mm -hmm. Although, I mean, no one seems to care that animals are not happy in zoos. So,
0: Yeah, it's not not on the top of importance.
1: (laughs) I thought that making Conway's Game of Life inside Conway's Game of Life that we talked about last week was the coolest thing that you could do on Conway's Game Mm -hmm. of Life. But I think I'm wrong. It's up for interpretation, obviously. But this one's pretty cool. It's Conway's Game of Life that finds prime numbers. How? Uh, basically, it shoots gliders that represent the numbers between one and however long you let it run. Uh, so it starts with one. One's not a prime number, and then it so it destroys the glider mm-hmm. w- with some weird logic. Um, and yeah, it just has a mechanism that. Grabs a glider and destroys it if it's not a prime number. So then it goes to two, and two is a prime number, so it lets it go through. And then it goes to three, lets three through four, and divides it by two and three to see if it's a prime Mm -hmm. number. And it is divisible by two, so it grabs it and destroys it. And I'll put the link in the show notes because it's pretty cool. That's
0: really crazy.
1: Yeah. And I think in theory, if you had a big enough canvas, then you could just have it go on forever. It's definitely not an efficient way to do it, but
0: it's very cool. Um I'm, I'm trying to remember. I feel like I've heard somewhere that there are for sure infinite primes and I've heard somewhere that there was a step towards a proof for infinite primes.
1: There is definitely do infinite, You know.
0: Yeah, no, it's
1: someone proved infinite primes a long time ago. What they're trying to do now is prove infinite twin primes.
0: Yes, that's the one. Okay.
1: Twin primes are numbers, are primes that are only separated by one, by one number. So three and five are twin primes mm. because they are only separated by four. Um, 11 and 13 are twin primes because they're only separated by 12. And so, yeah, uh, I'll put a link in the description for, um, in the show notes. I'll put a link in the show notes for the proof for the fact that there are infinite prime numbers, and I'll put a link in for the step towards a proof for infinite twin primes.
0: Because mm-hmm. I, I was in class the other day, and my computer science professor was talking about how it's best for some algorithm to choose a number that is a prime number. And then he said, which it's really convenient then that there are and then he like stopped himself and then he said a lot of prime numbers and i wasn't sure if he was unnecessarily hedging his bets or
1: it was definitely unnecessary there is I should really google this before i keep just making this claim (laughs) okay yes there are several proofs that there are infinite prime numbers okay we're good good So, yesterday, as we record this, I went to the state forensics meet and competed. Mm -hmm. And forensics is basically competitive public speaking.
0: Competitive Uh, talking.
1: Yeah. And (laughs) basically, you have a judge with five categories, each one worth five points. Mm -hmm. And so your high score is 25, and your lowest score is... Technically, it's zero, but that's only if you don't show up. Yeah. So it's five. You can get a one in each category and get a five. Mm -hmm. So to get to a state, you have to go through uh, regionals and sectionals. Sectional finals, I guess. And if you get a 16 or higher in regionals, then you make it to sectionals. Mm -hmm. If you get... a Two twenties, 20s, you get judged three times. If you get two 20s, then you get to go to state. Yeah. And in state, you only get one shot. And it's, if you get a 25, it's a gold. If you get 24 through 23, it's silver. If you get 22 through 20, it's bronze. And anything lower than that is small bronze. Mm-hmm. Last year, you and I
0: went to state and got a gold. That we did. With Welcome to Night Vale uh amalgamation of a couple yeah. of different welcome to night vale scripts yeah
1: and yeah we were super happy about that so this year i did it again but i couldn't have zach as my partner again i worked with our friend liam and i didn't we picked night last year because we didn't want to do one of the typical um group interpretation speeches mm-hmm. there are- which is a category in forensics Yeah, you should explain that.
0: So forensics has a couple different categories. The one that I usually did was play acting, which is you memorize the script and you essentially just act this play with a few people. Group interpretation is a little different. You get a piece and you don't look at each other. You just look at the audience and you do movements and inflection with your voice to bring the piece to life. Um, So you could do group interpretation of an Emily Dickinson poem but you could do play acting of, like, a Monty Python sketch.
1: right? So, yeah, a podcast was really good for group interpretation because there is no actions that we could follow, so we had to do it all our own. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Uh, and this year, I couldn't find a script that I liked, so I basically say to Liam, uh, Hey, do you want to just, like, what if I just write one? <gasps> what if I just write uh, a... <gasps> Scandalous. Yeah, uh, yeah and he's like okay it's going to be cool cuz it's going to be it's going to be good because it's going to be in our voices i guess mm-hmm. and it'll still so flow really well but they don't like it the judges that is don't like it very much when you write your own because of because if you it's not that they don't like it but if you say it's an original piece then they can judge you on the piece itself mm-hmm. if you if it's someone else's then they can't judge it so I actually wrote under a pseudonym, mm-hmm. and it was two pieces combined, uh, one about the Higgs boson and one about quarks and their weird and interesting properties. And I'm super proud of it, both of them, and eventually I'd like to get them published as a actual group inter-speech, and our teachers are going to help us with that.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there, um, is there like a WordPress or something that people can get them out now? Not currently.
1: Uh... Maybe eventually. I'll update you guys in two weeks on how that's going. But yeah, so Liam and I went to state for with the with that piece, and uh we got a twenty-two, which is a bronze. Almost a silver, which mm-hmm. we feel
0: is not quite fair. What yeah, what were the comments? They always say if they don't give you a five, they give you comments on what you could have improved. It's
1: well, so I screwed up the intro. Mm-hmm. The intro was the only part you have to memorize, and I did a poor job of memorizing it. And so, yeah, that one, that point we deserved. So we got a four on the intro. Yeah. Um, the Another one was our speed of delivery, I guess. Uh, and that was unfair, we think, because we actually went longer than we usually do. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know that judge was just particularly picky about that and oh well um yeah yeah, there's not much you can do about it it's really it's they tried to make it uh objective but it's not it's it's inherently subjective and so another point we got off was we didn't exaggerate the voices we were using as much as we probably should have which i can kind of see but i'll explain it a little bit for the uh higgs boson piece i put on like a uh excited about science kind of voice Uh, like if you ever hear hank green talk about science it's like Mm -hmm. that and liam puts on a super unenthused voice like this is the most boring topic in the world but i'm going (laughs) to say it i'm going to say the same amount of content that he is saying in a enthused voice and it was like a really cool contrast and it worked really Mm -hmm. well and in the second voice, the second piece for Quarks, I put on pretty much the same Hank Green voice. And he put on a Valley Girl kind mm-hmm. of thing where he say, says kind of dit- ditzy things and makes it funny.
0: So you got to play the part of Steven who was excited about space or yeah. physics. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and Liam got to play whatever he wanted. Um, so, yeah. And for the one of our comments was that Liam wasn't very enthused about what he was saying, <laughs> which is like oh, yeah. So. yeah those,
0: are, those are so hard when you want to you, you want, want to, to explain, do something.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to explain to her what we were trying to go for and if I feel like if she knew then she would give us those points back. Yeah. But I think oh well.
0: we had so. that problem once with um with our Welcome to Night Vale script. I don't mm. remember what it was now.
1: I think it was something along the lines of, like, this didn't make any sense. What the oh, heck? okay, yeah. And that's kind of the point. If you ever listen to Night Vale, it's like, th- the whole point is for the listener to not know what's going on, but the characters to be very matter-of-fact about it. Like, this is a normal occurrence. Uh, So they're not going to talk and explain the whole thing to you. You just have to use your... It's, imagination. Yeah, you have to use your imagination, and... I don't know. I guess the judge wasn't super happy about it. And the whole idea of judging state forensics, or forensics in general, I guess, is um, it's really hard because you want to give from the people, from the judges I've talked to, they always want to give you a 25 except you moved your feet a little bit too much and I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, it stinks, but it's still better than completely subjective judging. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we... And there's st- times, like, the, when they don't tell you what you did wrong, which is annoying, too. Like, we got an 18, mm-hmm. but all of his comments were, you did perfectly. Oh. But I, what what do we improve? He said, you talked a little fast, and we got an 18 for that, oh, and man. I don't know how. So, yeah. It's just, sometimes you just get a judge that doesn't like you yeah. very much. You can't, like, argue with them, so... Yeah.
0: If you wanna see us on the internet, we'll be around. I'm on Twitter at the Pun Sky. And I'm at Not Stephen Berry.
1: We'll see you next time on the Worrying Bugs Podcast. You can find us on
0: iTunes or Google Play Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe, or give ratings and comment. I think that's the one. <laughs> and specifically comment
1: because it helps us out more than just writing. It does. Goodbye. Goodbye.